You are listening to That's Infotainment with Morgan and John. I'm Morgan. And I'm John. And this is good to go, man. We're in business. Today we're talking all about, what is it, West Side Story, Mad Max Fury Road, and Slavoj Žižek's The Pervert's Guide to Cinema. Yeah, three of a kind. Let's get into (laughs) it. All right, buddy. How the hell you been? Good, good. So I forced you to watch West Side Story. I, yeah. Which which is good now because now you know what the opening theme is from because for a year and a <laughs> yeah, half, that's right. you had no idea what that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now you know. Yeah. Leonard, pretty good Mr. movie. Mr. Leonard Bernstein. Pretty good movie. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. We don't often watch the films together. Almost never. But this time we did. Yeah. Yeah. Almost never. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it, it's hard to do that, I think, because then you see it and then you want to talk about it right away. Right, exactly. Which is my... And, and you're always with your lady friend, so... Uh, yep, that's true. <laughs> so it's hard to schedule any time to do anything with you. Uh, that's true. I'm known to have female <laughs> accompaniments. Well, I uh, say that with tongue firmly in cheek, of course. Of you course. always have time for your friends. Yeah, I, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, you <laughs> good, do. Good, you do. Right. I'm a social being. Right, yeah. yeah. You are, you are. Uh-huh. A social butterfly one might say. Yeah, right. I like to uh, go to bars. Right, but you, you broke up, right? That's Oh, wow, right. You've been yeah. having some Oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. I didn't know if I was going to be talking about that, but yeah. Did, How are yeah. you doing from that? Are you okay? Are I'm you doing all down? right. It was my choice, so I'm doing cool. I'm, I'm cool. Um, but it was still hard. Oh, it sucks. Yeah, of yeah. course. It sucks. Uh, relationships ending, are, uh, that's a tough... Uh, Tough, uh, I think thing. it's one of the most difficult human experiences, along with you know losing a loved one, a parent, or something. I mean, yeah, it's like so cliche until it's happening to you, and it, right. it's like anytime you hear the story of somebody's breakup, it's like, ah, oh, you're gonna be fucking yeah, fine. get over it. Yeah, get over it. You're gonna be fine. <laughs> then Why it happens. So mopey. Then it happens to you, and it's like, oh, <laughs> the no. world is ending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I'm doing all right. Doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah fine. I know it's hard for you. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, went up to Death Valley. Um, how was that oh beautiful dude it is absolutely gorgeous i you know as social as i am i i do um like uh, want and need uh various uh, uh states Distractions. of aloneness yeah yeah. I, yeah it's a distraction it's also um you know in slaw they call it like a top line behavior uh which is like things that you know that for yourself are healthy um and to me that's like camping spending time alone in the wilderness and and things like that and just having time to like think and decompress um but it's weird because it can also be escapism a little bit which right. i mentioned here on the show it's like on one hand yes it's very healthy um on the other hand maybe i'm neglecting my responsibilities right. and like running away from things you, you tend to do it pretty spontaneously too it's like, definitely always uh, spontaneous uh-huh. um but that's just because i love to drive too so like sure. the idea of driving five or six hours is right not road, a problem yeah. for me at all like i think for a lot of people it's like oh that sounds horrible you know, but for me, it's definitely more like, oh, that's like ninety percent of what's fun about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting is we always talk about you know uh, movies as a form of escapism, but you yeah. you take it an extra step and go to the actual places where the yeah. movies were filmed, yeah. and if possible, you sleep in them. Oh yeah, so yeah. I went to I went to the Armagosa yeah. Opera House and Hotel, um, which you may know from Lost Highway, uh, which is I one of my favorite David Lynch movies. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, I pulled in right, right around like 7.30, right before they closed. It's in, it's in Nevada, all the way through Death Valley National Park. 
which is a little scary, by the way. Oh, God. Just yeah. being. I wouldn't do it alone. That's crazy. Just <laughs> being like 200 miles from the nearest gas station. Yeah. You know, you got to make sure your car has like three big gallons of water, food for a couple of days. I mean, if you break down, you're pretty fucked. I yeah. didn't see another soul for a long time. your cell time. phone charged up and everything. Yeah. So I scoot into this, this creepy opera house motel that's out there in the middle of the desert. This woman, um, Marty Beckett was her name, uh, was a Broadway actress. And in the 60s, she was driving through Death Valley. Oh, wow. And she um, got a flat tire in front of this abandoned borax factory. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, in the in the Vorex factory was this um, room where the workers would congregate and she peeked in through it as their tire was getting fixed. And she was like, I saw the second half of my life play out. Wow. I'm going to create an opera house out here in the middle of the desert. And um, there's this great article in National Geographic, I think, where these guys were out in Death Valley and they stumble upon the opera house and they find her in there performing uh, for no one. Wow. <laughs> um, which is kind of unsettling. Wait, right? the, the song for no one by the Beatles or just for, for no, no one, one actually? Yeah, so the performing. opera house is filled with these murals all of an audience. Uh huh. Um, wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool and a testament to just like creating your own. Are there ever life. like actual performances? Yes. There? Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. The uh, that like Friday there was some famous violinists coming by and stuff. I think it's a popular tourist destination. Yeah. Um, it's a historical landmark, so it's pretty much exactly as it was when they filmed Lost Highway. That's so uh, cool. And so anyway, I show up at seven thirty they close at eight i'm really hoping they have a room i do not want to camp in the middle of the desert it was so windy it was just yeah. it, it, the dust and the wind it was going nuts i was like oh fuck i pull in uh they're like uh yep we have one room available it's room 15 i was like oh okay um do you think tomorrow would be possible for me to just quickly pop into room 26 and take a photo she goes there is no room 26 because <laughs> that's the one from lost highway right so i get into the room and uh i open the door and i'm like oh my god this is the room where bill pullman like punches the shit out of robert loja amazing um look it up on on netflix on my phone watch the scene <laughs> i'm like i'm definitely in this room this is incredible um yeah, that was pretty fantastic. And then I uh, skipped off to Area 51. Right. Did they say <laughs> that a lot of Lost Highway fans kind of come in, no. in search of your... Yeah, it probably doesn't She had, like, no often. idea who, like, it was or really? what was going on. Yeah. The next day, the woman, uh, there was another woman yeah. who knew. She was just like, I don't know. They shoot a lot of stuff in here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, well, this is a really good one. Right. Like, yeah, whatever. I don't know. They shoot a lot of shit in here. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, just a, a little uh, sidebar was, you know, uh, Kevin Smith is from my hometown of yeah. Leonardo, New Jersey. Yep. And, uh, I know it well from the Clerks cartoon. Sure. Big right. Fan. Yeah. Big right. fan. Leonardo. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that quick stop or whatever it was yeah. called in the movie was, you know, a place you always went yeah. when you were a kid. And uh, I went back, you know, a, a few years ago and I, I hadn't been back for a long time and I walked in there. And it became immediately apparent that the owner and the employees hate when people come in and I'm ask sure. about clerks. Like you, you just got the vibe that you, you know, you should not mention anything about clerks. So I just <laughs> looked around and, and left. Yeah. And then the other time I did something like that was it was before they tore down the Sharon Tate house. Okay. Yeah. Up on Cielo. Yeah. 
and I was in the middle. Didn't Trent Reznor live in there? Trent Reznor yeah. rented it. Oh, and, right, um, to record yeah, yeah. an album, and then to he record... said he felt really bad about it. Right. He yeah. he uh, he recorded um, Downward Spiral there, which okay. is by yeah. far his best album and most successful, I think. But um, yeah, in the middle of reading Helter Skelter, I went up there, you know, just out of curiosity, and it was before they tore it down, and they tore it down and put up this huge, awful, like white elephant monstrosity. It's uh-huh. like the ugliest house I've ever I've seen. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to Spawn Ranch. Uh, well, what's left of it? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, just when I went up there, you know, I didn't try to get near it because you have, it's like at the end of a cul-de-sac type thing at the <laughs> yeah. end of the street. You don't just accidentally no. get there. No, <laughs> and uh, I was standing there and I started freaking out and it was all in my head, obviously, but like I was looking at the telephone pole and I'm like, well, that's the telephone pole. He climbed up to cut the wire and, and whatever. And, uh, yeah, I just started freaking out in my head and I got out of there and, and, and I kind of realized, you know, after the fact, like Trent Reznor, that mm-hmm. it's kind of not cool to, to go up to a real life scene. Like yeah. your thing is fine because it's, you know, lost highway and it, it was where they filmed, but yeah, to kind of, it's, it's a little exploitive and weird to, to go up where an actual murder happened, you know, kind of yeah. for your own entertainment. Look, so. I don't want to talk shit about any other podcasts on this podcast, yeah. but there's, you know, there's this dirge of yeah. uh, murder shows and i just think that um a we focus way too much on the perpetrators right very little on the victims yeah and um in my opinion it's uh there's a line there's a fucking line between being like yeah this is some interesting social psychology i guess like what is a psychopath or a sociopath but there's this weird sort of perverse pleasure everybody gets from hearing these horrible horrible crimes right and um you know i used to listen to like my favorite murder Mm -hmm. and it was like nothing about this is funny or should be spoken about in a glib way and i'm i'm like the guy who's so quick to just be like you can make a joke out of anything and i do think that's true i think dark humor is totally fine right but i think um a bunch of people retroactively disagreeing with a young woman's choices who got slaughtered by a psychopath is pretty gross and i just have a very low tolerance for hearing about that stuff well well well, i I think that is definitely a maturity thing too because i think like when you're 16 to 18 or whatever i think your empathy is not yet fully developed yeah um but yeah i think after a certain age you realize that the these are things to ha- that happen to actual people and yeah. actual people have feelings and there was oh this is horrible there was i have a friend who had a girlfriend and they were going to go to halloween with him dressed as roman polanski <laughs> and her dressed as sharon tate oh my um God. but like sharon tate uh, in the state she was in after oh my god and, like and pregnant I, and bloody yeah and oh, i no. begged them i said you can't do this like yeah. because it was right in los Feliz, like just a mile from where the la bianca murders yeah, were and i said them. you don't know if you're gonna run into people you don't know if yeah. someone is a relative who's gonna be at that party and it's just gross i said if you're gonna do it do do them in like the mid 60s when they were all glamorous sure. and beautiful and, and this yeah. was like a beautiful girl and it could have and i eventually talked them out of it so i was <laughs> yeah. very glad about that i yeah. considered that a victory now i will say i was in your i i, I do kind of like bad taste a little bit sure don't get me of wrong. course yeah the whole john waters thing yeah that's yeah. great mm-hmm. i was in new york at halloween and i get onto the subway and this dude gets on this must have been in 2008 or 9 this guy gets on perfect NYPD police uniform covered in dust. Oh, wow. He literally wow. looked yeah. like he had just stepped out of one of those horrible, you uh-huh. know, Jeff Mermelstein 9-11 photos. Jeez. And um, 
I he sat down right across from me, and it was like, it's very hard to describe how accurate and how good he looked. Right. <laughs> it's such bad taste. Right. And I was like, excuse me. He was like, yeah. I was like, are you a 9-11 cop? <laughs> and he goes, yes. Yes. He's like, everybody keeps saying, are you a dirty cop? Like he was doing some oh, sort of it. stupid yeah, yeah. pun. And a he was pun, like, yeah. no, yes, I'm a 9-11 cop. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And he was like, I hate cops, man. I was like, all right. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, yeah, the, you know, I said it before on this podcast, I think places where movies were shot are sacred spaces. There's very interesting vibes going on yeah. in those types of things. And, and well, I, I think the exception as far as podcasts go is I think, uh, Karina Longworth did a brilliant series on the Manson murders. Manson, sure. but it, it was awesome because she took in all of the other subjects yeah. uh, related to it, like the Beach Boys yeah, and Roman Polanski's yeah. film career, right. and yes, yeah, so I, I think she did quite an amazing job and 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 it was very tastefully done. Yeah, um, I'm not saying we should never talk about sure, these things. Right, I just I think it. that like the idea of that becoming entertainment as opposed right. to something that's like informational mostly i don't know i'm very excited to see tarantino's movie i'm sure he's gonna do great things with it and well, i'm sure it'll be kind of exploitative and weird like i but i you know who the fuck knows well sharon tate's sister gave it her blessing interesting so, yeah, yeah she's um and she she really took um trent Reznor to task and he you know eventually came to yeah. agree with her yeah uh, that that it wasn't cool yeah. what he do, did and that that he publicized the fact that it was recorded there and of course yeah that was like the marketing campaign right <laughs> like, so but but yeah she yeah. she's done a great job of of keeping people quote unquote honest mm-hmm. in, in regards to in regards to that kind of thing yeah but um okay so uh so you go to this lost highway place and you didn't get creeped out at all because i mean it's a fucking scary movie yeah, I don't really like believe in ghosts. I guess right, me uh, the every it's apparently one of the top ten most haunted hotels in America oh, for shit. whatever that right. is worth. Whatever um, that means. Yeah, I will say like I pff, nothing. I didn't see or hear anything. I'm just. I've definitely had like weird ghostly experiences. I lived in an abandoned hospital that was converted into apartments in New <laughs> right. York City. Definitely some weird shit went on, but I think that's mostly just me getting scared. Yeah, of, it's in your in head. My head. Um, so I didn't feel that way at all. I was actually just like totally blissed out and really, really happy to to that's be great. out there. Um, the whole reason I went really was a to see that, but also because it's 20 minutes from um, Devil's Hole, Nevada, which I think is the coolest place on the face of the earth. It's actually where Manson thought the family was going to move okay. after the Helter Skelter race war stuff. They were going to hide underground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's right outside of Death Valley in Ash Meadows National Wildlife Preserve, um, but it's it's technically like owned by uh, Death Valley and the government. And what it is <laughs> is it's a uh, it's a six foot by sixty foot hole in the ground um, that leads to an underwater cave system that's at least 500 feet deep they don't know how deep it is that's the deepest they've been which is even insane for like the ocean that's incredibly deep they think Uh it might be the largest underwater cave system in the world um it's home to the devil's hole pupfish which is like one of the most endangered species on the planet it's a fish that's about twenty thousand years old and totally self-sustained inside this little hole in the ground um they're these cute little blue fish so you can't really get anywhere near it because they're preserving the fish okay but the coolest thing about it is it sounds like science fiction when an earthquake happens in mexico or a tsunami happens in japan big tectonic plate shift things 
this hole will you hear like a sucking drain sound you smell sulfur and then it gets like six foot waves wow coming out of it um that's insane within minutes (laughs) within minutes of like an earthquake um and so there's these great videos online of the park service that they post on their youtube of just the same day of the earthquake in Osaka or whatever in mexico Oaxaca. i don't know how to say it um it's just like slosh 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 and they're like well i guess the fish aren't breeding today (laughs) you know um it's incredibly cool so i went there and then i drove up to area 51 um which was great what did you see at area 51 i saw um it was funny so there's this little motel in rachel nevada called the little ailey inn um and they're just trailers, but you can stay in them. And they have a bar and a restaurant, which mm-hmm. is actually pretty good, by the way. Uh, there's no gas station around, so definitely fill up before you go. <laughs> but so I drove past, like, the Nevada test site as seen in Twin Peaks Season 3, right. which was pretty yeah. cool. And then uh, around through the Tonopah test range and then up to Rachel, Nevada, which is on the other side of the mountain from Groom Lake, which is Area 51. So I go into this bar, and I ask the guy, I'm like, how often do you see weird stuff? You know, And he goes... I'll just go outside for like half an hour. <laughs> I was like, really that often? And he's like, yeah, it's like literally over the mountain range. No one lives here. They just do stuff all the time. And I was like, you'd think they would have moved by now, <laughs> right. you know, their top Everyone secret plane project. <laughs> and he goes, who's going to stop them? <laughs> I was like, fair. And I will say like, what was kind of cool about it is not everybody there was like this big UFO alien that everybody's like ex air force or just people that are really interested in, in kind of these multi multi million dollar planes right um so yeah i go out i park my car it's also just gorgeous because it's 110 miles before the nearest gas station and then it's 50 miles in the other direction so you're just sandwiched in between these two mountain ranges and it is the most quiet place i've ever been incredible the stars were incredible i hung out for like four hours just look i am from arizona i mean you know we get a little bit of star in the Mm -hmm. desert but phoenix is so close you can't see shit sure same here in la you never see stars it took like a half an hour for my eyes just to adjust to the darkness and then it was really incredible but so yeah i go out i park it's like 30 minutes i see this fucking black triangle take up uh, (laughs) at a 90 degree angle into the sky and then just disappear just disappear right and then a couple seconds later i hear this like sonic boom and it's like right over my head and it came out of nowhere um and i don't think it's alien stuff i think yeah these are like 500 million dollar planes uh you know just incredible shit probably not even with a human inside just drone (laughs) you know i mean it was so so cool and so i wasn't even gonna stay there but i saw that in like 10 minutes i was like fuck it i'm just hanging out and (laughs) watching planes all day so I went back, bought That's a six-pack, so cool. and, and booked a room. Um, and they had X-Files on VHS, so I just watched all of course. Now I'm <laughs> fully into X-Files again. Uh, and then, yeah, went up to, like, the Area 51 gates where there's the dudes in the white trucks. And I saw these <laughs> I saw these white buses with tinted windows coming in and out and stuff. It was it was cool. It was definitely a, yeah. definitely a trip. And then um, I was feeling all guilty about uh fucking off when i had no work at, at all <laughs> like and just being like oh i don't have money i'm you know haven't worked in a few months and then i got a call and they were like can you start on monday on See this how new the netflix show works? it was great yeah so that's that's what i've been up to how about, how about you? uh getting back to lost highway <laughs> sorry no no i think <laughs> that i don't i don't get scared by movies like i just don't i i they don't scare me they don't have the ability i don't like 
you know, I don't have to grab onto someone if I'm in a movie theater and watching a scary movie. I don't, you know, I don't have trouble sleeping after it. But I have to say, kind of, there's two exceptions to that rule. And one of them is Lost Highway. Yeah. And it's because of Robert Blake. Yeah, that's... I think he's so fucking unnerving yeah. in that movie. Yep. It's an incredible performance. And then considering kind of what happened, you know, three years after that with his him murdering wife. his yeah. wife, uh, it just it it makes it even more so. Yeah. He's so like Lynch picked the perfect actor for that role. Yeah. yeah it's so good. It's a yeah, it's a very deeply unsettling film. Um and you know, maybe this is a great way to get into Pervert's Guide here. Yeah. Um uh but uh yeah, there's something about it that just really resonates um with i think on a subconscious level on a level that you don't even understand necessarily well that's so that's the point of pervert's guide which is this um documentary kind of it's film criticism by slavoj zizek who um has since lost a bit of i wouldn't say credibility um but he was very in vogue for a while Uh um he's a very like leftist marxist uh, psychoanalyst well it's it's a freudian analysis of movies essentially and it's really lacanian too and if anything lacan has just gone up in in esteem like across the board um and i was talking to my friend about it today and i actually like wrote a, a like a little description down um he was he was phrasing it as like so anyway so the the point of the film is that Zizek inserts himself into famous scenes from movies so he does like the birds psycho um the matrix fight club um what else all of lynch yeah um and then like the red shoes yeah uh, a lot of pressing your film pressing your films and um uh, like dr mabuse blue velvet all these all these great films and his sort of thesis throughout is is essentially that there are all these subconscious factors at play that make films relate to each other in ways that the directors probably had no idea they were right. even doing. And most of it is sexual and some of it is poop. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, a lot of it's like very resonant to your own life, whether or not you believe in Freud. I personally think Freud got a lot of shit right. I think Lacan probably got more right. Um and uh and he's saying that that's how like the zeitgeist works right it's not this conscious thing um that people intend to do um as my friend put it really succinctly it's like um you know these are pernicious powerful ideas and they're total accidents and then they inform our our culture and the way we deal with each other and then that in turn becomes our films that we make based on things that people didn't even know they were doing that affected us um he was saying like um you know oh great there's this cool song with a hot beat that might have like a horribly offensive message kanye west and before you know it 80 million people are all into this song because of the hot beat and then oops we're putting these horribly (laughs) offensive ideas into the world how does that shape our culture um you know, Martin Scorsese movies are flashy and really fun. Uh-oh, now everybody's doing cocaine. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, we were saying, like, you, you often hear a lot about, like, the liberal media and how they have this agenda. Um, but clearly we got Trump. So that's not how the zeitgeist works. It's not about these conscious things that right. people are putting out into the world at all. It's about these subconscious messages that get conveyed in ways that the people don't even know they're doing. And through that lens, you can start to relate 
David Lynch movies to Marx Brothers movies because we're all coming from the same background and the same stuff and putting these ideas unconsciously into films, which yeah, I that, think is incredible. That was my favorite part is yeah. kind of making those connections between films that would seem to have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but the way he leads you into it and the way you talks about it, he talks about it makes you say, "Oh, of course, yeah." You know, duck soup is the same as uh, you know blue velvet. Exactly. It's, yeah. Like, I, and and I I don't think the point of it isn't that the Marx Brothers sat down one day and they said, "All right, Groucho, you're the ego. Right. Chico's <laughs> right. the super ego. The opposite Harpo's the they id. never did that. They never did that. But the idea is that these ideas are so powerful that they like can't help but manifest themselves in." work um and i think that's the only interesting way to really view movies is like what is the unconscious intent here and and what's it say about the person who made it right right well well, or us for enjoying it yeah it's interesting with vertigo i mean no one really got it when it first came out uh and it didn't do that well critically or at the box office right and it kind of wasn't until you know the collective us uh, analyzed it over the years, people building on other people's ideas about it, that uh, what it's actually about started to emerge and it became respected as the greatest movie of all time. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, the the best movies, you know, will will do that. They will uh, stand up to scrutinization and, and people learning more things about them as time goes on. Have I discussed his, uh, Zizek's, like, theory on Spielberg on this podcast at all? I don't think so. About how it's all daddy issues? I mean, I know that's true, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But so, like, what he says is that a lot of Spielberg movies are, like, remakes of themselves, and um, Spielberg might not even be aware of it. I think he's a pretty smart guy. He probably knows more than some level, we think. Yeah. But, but like, the themes that he gravitates to. And so Zizek says that Jurassic Park and Schindler's List are a great example of, like, the same movie. Um, and they're all about... Uh, this sort of paternal superego that manifests itself as a monster attack, um, much like the birds, right? Where she, Marianne comes and meets <laughs> right. the guy and he's living with his mom. The mom doesn't want her there and then the birds attack. Jurassic Park is a very similar film because it's about a guy who hates kids, explicitly stated in the first act of the movie. He does not want to have children with Ellie Sattler. Um, And then two kids arrive that he is put in charge of. And what happens? Dinosaurs attack. Right. Um, As soon as he realizes that he actually likes these kids and wants (laughs) to protect them and care for them, a nice dinosaur shows up. And then he throws away his object of fetishistic disavowal, which is like the claw that he has. And, uh, and Schindler's List, in a way, is very similar. It's about a guy, Schindler, who doesn't feel responsible for the Jews, doesn't want to have anything to do with what's occurring in the world. The Nazis attack, and then he's forced to reconcile his feelings with this group of people. He embraces them. He saves them. The Nazis go away, right? right um, yeah. E.T. is a similar story about a kid who is with a single mother, um, and she's maybe dating or going off and doing things. This alien comes into his life. Um, and, and very similar jaws is like a kid and a dad and uh, a shark appears out of nowhere right. um war of the worlds is probably like the most dead on it's about a divorced dad who gets his <laughs> kids for the weekend and he's all busy and doesn't have time for them aliens attack he protects his kids aliens go yeah. away right so i mean a, a lot of his <laughs> movies are just about him still dealing with the fact that his parents got divorced yeah potentially right? and, um, and the guilt yeah i yeah. mean who, who the hell knows maybe he doesn't even know um, but I think I think that those are very interesting ways to look at movies. And as you were saying, um, you know, 
when we watch Pervert's Guide that like artistic intent is sometimes the least interesting thing about right. it. Authorial intent is the least interesting thing to analyze. Yeah, and I and I think that I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but it's only insofar as like how does that uh, uh, complement or negate what they actually conveyed right like right. that's when it starts to become really interesting to me um well i mean yeah. you know it was in i guess uh 1989 or 1990 when i first read camille paglia's analysis of the birds mm -hmm. when i was like holy shit there is a world of stuff going on there that i had never even considered sure and that's when i began to look at movies in a different way yeah um and and i i do think it's true i mean i i think that uh what what the author intends it, it isn't very interesting mm -hmm. uh it, it tends not to be it's it's the things that are there that they didn't explicitly think about when they were sitting and writing it yeah um and yeah i i do owe it to to camille paglia just for opening my eyes yeah to the fact that that existed well and it's interesting to bring it back to what we were talking about movies as escapism for me or you or anybody really is that there is a way to watch a film i think where you completely divorce yourself from your personal life and what's going on with you in order to just get envelop yourself in the film which i think happens more often when i'm in a theater than when i'm at home i just think that's the conditions of that sure. space um but i also think that you have to acknowledge the fact that these things affect you in ways that you are either conscious of or not conscious of. And so sometimes they force you into these positions where you have to reconcile what you recognize on screen with yourself. Right. And, and that's the opposite of escapism, right? Is like that is psychoanalysis right. <laughs> of yourself yeah. based on, you know, how Bobby Peru acts in a mo in wild at heart or something, right? Like you might see an element of yourself in somebody horrific, um or or somebody fantastic and then think well wait a minute why and then yeah. before you know it you're spiraling into a discussion with yourself that's happening in your mind while these images flash in front of you i think that that's incredible yeah, yeah. well he talks about the the toilet in the conversation great movie and another uh toilet scene and i think it was the first time that a toilet was ever shown flushing in the movies was psycho it was psycho yeah where marion is figuring out how much she owes how much she spent of the money she she stole and she rips it up and flushes it down the toilet now when you're watching that as a viewer you kind of something kind something about that act kind of resonated with me for some reason but i couldn't pick up on it and i just let it go but when you look at it she's flushing these dirty deeds she did down the toilet and yeah. she's like so it kind of makes sense on that level that you know the shit that she has planned to do that she was always uh so great such a nice and uh dependable person all her life and here she shit all over that by stealing the money yeah and now she's attempting to make it right by getting rid of it right and, and exactly in a place yeah. you know we don't pay attention to where our shit goes that's exactly right and but so she can't do that and so what's <laughs> particularly horrifying that. in that scene in the conversation is it comes back right up. that's right it and that's and up. that's yeah. what's so disturbing about it and it's, it's such so a great disturbing. metaphor for <laughs> and it's blood and it's blood <laughs> and it comes back and it's like yeah, I just think I think that Zizek uh, gets a lot right. I watched his Jordan Peterson debate. I think Jordan Peterson is a bloviating asshole who doesn't. Yeah, know how anything. was that? Um, very entertaining. Yeah. Um, a very smart man. He's a lot smarter than Jordan Peterson. I think the funniest thing about that debate was, um, Peterson has pretty much made an entire career off of saying that uh, capitalism is the way to happiness. 
um zizek was saying that happiness is so besides the point of what we should be achieving and looking forward to and how we should be structuring our lives but peterson went first and essentially said (laughs) and admitted and i couldn't believe it um that zizek's work is so dense that he couldn't possibly um dive into all of it Mm -hmm. with the amount of prep time for the debate so he went back and read the communist manifesto for the first time since he was like 18 years old he's 58 now oh you're like you've made a career off of bashing Marx and being pro-capitalism and you haven't read the fucking manifesto (laughs) the shortest book that Marx wrote (laughs) you haven't read the tract like what the fuck dude like it was embarrassing it's like if you want to bash Marxism go for it but know your Marx and he doesn't at all and um, Zizek wasn't even really defending Marx. He was more just saying that capitalism is driving us towards this inevitable culture collapse. Um, and, you know, Peterson's whole argument is like, well, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And Zizek put it really succinctly where he's like, the light at the end of the tunnel is sometimes another train coming your way. <laughs> right. um, so he was just very eloquent. He was very song. personable. He was really funny. Mm-hmm. And Peterson just had to, and I actually give Peterson some credit for this, it was very professional, but very often he was saying things like, I can't, I can't argue that. Or, right. um, you know, that you, you're totally right. I have nothing uh, to say. Nothing to say. And, well, what, what yeah. does Zizek say? If happiness isn't the point, what is the point? If you can, if you can pinpoint it at all on any level. Um, I'm probably misreading him a little bit, but it seemed to just be like survival, uh-huh. right? Um, the idea of continuing a planet and a species, um, as opposed to if everybody is just focused entirely on their own personal individual happiness, which is what Peterson advocates. My friend put it really succinctly. It's like, that's how you get rush hour, right? Like it sounds <laughs> great. Everybody wanting to get home first sounds great. <laughs> and then you're fucking stuck on a, on right, a freeway. Yeah. Um, these things, everybody's own personal individual happiness conflicts with everyone else's. But wait, doesn't and happiness, can't happiness uh, stem from focusing on the survival of the planet yeah, and, but that and he everyone says, else? He, Peterson's whole argument is that you have to care about what you want first and then everybody else and then like some other, he's got like 12 It'll steps never work, or whatever. Though. It's bullshit. It makes yeah. no fucking sense. Yeah, um, yeah it's just, I, yeah. <laughs> it was well, the, it, the libertarianism thing oh it, it makes no, and again libertarianism yeah, makes no fucking it's, it's sense. a phase yeah. one that i went through yeah. uh it, when i was very young but then you realize the folly of it and you're like no yeah uh, other things uh other people's happiness and ability to get along is key to your own happiness and yes. ability to get along i think the best part of the entire debate is peterson has made an entire career off of saying that these like postmodern marxists are um they are being like totalitarianistic and not letting people, you know, have free speech. They're demanding that people call folks by their right pronouns, blah, blah, blah. And that's what Peterson goes on the news and bloviates about all the time. Right. And Zizek really got him in a corner. He just said, who are these Marxists? <laughs> He's like, name one, like fucking name one. Like I am a Marxist philosopher. I know two. And they're both economists who write, dry books about marxist economy versus Mm -hmm. capitalist economy we are talking about a social structure and you are saying that there are these postmodern marxists running around demanding that we obey them he's like who the fuck are you talking about bernie sanders who's a centrist from you know like basically if you were in europe 10 years ago these are (laughs) centrist ideas like what name one and peterson just couldn't do it because it's made up it's not real yeah um 
it was pretty pretty great to watch him get cornered yeah yeah um but yeah per- pervert's guide is excellent i had no idea about it before you introduced it to me yeah i love any movie that kind of uh takes a genre or just takes the whole history of american film and analyzes kind of what it's about i think that stuff is really really fascinating which is why i love reading like pauline kale and, yeah yeah um, all right, should we take a little break real quick and then and then jump into the films? Well, I did want to um, mention a birthday, oh, and uh, great. I've sent you a uh, a file to play. Okay, um, it is um, Elaine May's birthday today. I saw that. Yeah, and uh, I'm I've always been a big fan. Same. Um, my favorite, I think, perfor- this isn't what we're playing, but my favorite performance of hers is in a terrible movie, um, California Suite. Have you seen? I've it? I've seen it. Yeah. I, I Isn't Woody Allen in it? Or no, no, who's in it? It's uh Neil Simon wrote it or Neil Simon wrote okay, it yes. and um Walter Matthau is oh, in Matthau. it. And and then, you know, it sounds like it has a great cast because yeah. like Jane Fonda and That's Alan right. Alda right. and Bill Cosby and uh Richard Pryor are in it. Yeah. The only the only time I think they acted together. But the only there's it's like different stories that happen in the Beverly Hills Hotel, I think. Yeah. Uh, but kind of the only story worth anything is Walter Matthau is married to Elaine May, and um, he's she's meeting up with him, but and he is cheating with this young blonde girl, and uh, she comes early. So it's about uh, Walter Matthau trying to hide this girl who's completely drunk and passed out. And Elaine May's delivery is so perfect and deadpan. Even when, you know, she sees the girl, she's like, Walter, what is that? Like, she's just so great. And she's just, and such a brilliant writer and director. I'm I'm just a big, big fan. Have you seen A New Leaf? Uh, No, I haven't. So that's her and Matthau as well. Um, Okay. That's a terrific movie. Walter Matthau plays, well, is that California Suite, the clip you want to play? Oh uh, no no okay it's all right so a, I'll, t- I'll yeah, talk about okay, a new leaf and then we'll play the clip. So a new leaf is about Walter Matthau, who's like this rich guy who has spent all of his money. That's how the movie starts. Uh-huh. It's like he's at his his accountants, and it's like you have no more money, yeah. which is immediately <laughs> hilarious. Um, and then he meets Elaine May, who's this sort of shut in who is has all this money. She lives in like a giant mansion, so he swindles her into falling in love with him. And then uh, I think, like, throughout the course of the film, like, tries to kind of offer or kill her or uh-huh. get rid of her or something. And then by the end of it, of course, he falls for her completely. And um, it's just – it's such a great role and it's such a great script. And she wrote it and she stars in it and she directed it, um, she, which is incredible. You know, she's she's really a, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and uh, she's – yeah, she's turning 88 years old tomorrow. So it's – Great. And, and – we're recording on Sunday. I'm, I'll, I'll try and release this tonight, so okay. it'll be current. Yeah, but um, yeah, um, I I pulled this um radio ad that she did with Mike Nichols in the '60s. Great. It's a short one. Um, just stop for a minute. And play yeah, it. we'll play it. Sorry. Claudine. Claudine, my dear. Claudine, my dear. Claudine. Dearest. Forgive me, dearest. You're snoring, Claudine. Are you crazy? 
I wasn't even sleeping. I was lying here resting. Darling, you were just snoring. I was just lying here resting. I really was. You shook the whole room. I wasn't even asleep. I can tell you just what I'm thinking. I was thinking. I was thinking, goodness, it's dark now that they've put the street lights out. That's what I was thinking. That was the last thought I thought before you shook me. All right, I'm sorry. Ah, fooled you, fooled you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> honey, 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 honey. Honey, I'm so sorry. You're just driving me crazy. You're snoring like I've never heard anybody snore. What is this, a joke? What is this, Angel Street? Oh, never mind, I'm sorry. Well, what are you trying to do? You were snoring. I was not snoring. I wasn't sleeping. You just a moment ago spoke to me. I'm wide awake. All right, fine. All right. I'm sorry I said anything, all right? All right. <laughs> he just kills her? <laughs> he just shoots her in the head at the end of that? Oh man, that's funny. What was that for? Uh, it was. It was. It said it was a radio ad, but I can't imagine they actually like used what? it. Yeah. I don't know. I have a couple of their albums here. Um, I, I couldn't find them. But this well, I, I think um, you know w when you look at the history of comedy, you know, a as we mentioned kind of the other night, I think David Letterman is a huge touchstone and a turning point. But I, I also think Nichols and May kind of in their heyday in the 60s influenced a lot of people. Oh like my god, yeah. That kind of dry kind of, yeah. uh, it, it's almost pre-irony what they did. Well, and a lot of it was improvised, which yeah. is astounding to me because I don't think you could go on a late night show today and just be like, oh, we're gonna like riff. Or we have this idea for yeah. a bit, we're gonna riff. No one would ever let you do that. Um, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Like, how funny they were just naturally. Right. Same with, like, Jonathan Winters and stuff. I mean, these guys, like, these improvisers, in the true sense of the word, where it's it was more like theater than it is today, which is, like, comedy. You know, they would have all, like, all sorts of emotion in it. It'd be sad, funny, like, yeah. uh, hilarious. And uh, I think improvisation is so hard. I think it's even hard to watch, like, current improvisation. Like, I think... It's so difficult, but they made it look so easy. I mean, there are people who are very good at improv, sure, yeah. and watching them is a is a blast. Uh -huh. But there are, I mean, it's such a popular medium now yeah. that you're going to get a lot of schlock. Like, of course, um, but yeah, they they were two of the best. Yeah, yeah, and and you know he's gone now, and um, very sad. And they, uh, yeah, just that that kind of whole era, like them and simon and garfunkel and the graduate like there's just a certain uh, yeah. uh a certain aesthetic i think that they had and and all those people that pervaded are kind of passing away so it's it's good that she's still around and still working she's awesome also like you know as i said before a, a woman who's writing starring and directing Amazing. in her own movies in 1960 yeah. you know i mean that's crazy and cool. kept her career and still has her career going yeah for years i mean years. incredible yeah. incredible shit um i watched something the other day that oh i went and saw pat and mike did we talk about this at the new beverly oh no no it's only slightly related but um it's a, a hepburn uh, tracy movie and uh it's like a sports film it's a kind of a slapsticky comedy and uh written by ruth gordon yeah in like 1954 or the something like ruth that gordon, yeah. it's just like awesome you know um, and now these, 
it's like we've slipped so far back in like the 80s and 90s that that is now an achievement right it's like oh a film written by a woman sure which is such a shame because it seemed like for a while i mean shit wasn't great for women don't get me wrong but uh that you know things like murphy brown were on the air show ran by a woman directed by a woman you know cagney and Lacey, virginia carter like stuff like that um and then something happened, and I uh, there's this great book about it called uh, Women Television Producers, 1948 to 2000. Right. Um, and they were saying that really what happened was that in the 80s and 90s, a lot of women were up for these uh, kind of development exec jobs, these like big, big jobs, because they had been like Norman Lear's assistant for many years or something, That's and they right. were going to take over ABC. And instead, for some reason, because of a financial crisis in the 80s, that all these men from Wall Street and like law firms in New York flocked to Hollywood and just started taking all the jobs that women were supposed to have. And it set us back 40 fucking years to where we are now, where it's like an astounding achievement that a movie could be made about a black woman or something. Right. It's like, fuck. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think I was telling you uh, the other day that, you know, one of my jobs at the Academy is kind of cataloging these old interviews. And we had an interview with this lady from the fifties who was a director of live television. And there were literally no women TV directors at the time. Right. She was the only one that existed. Wow. And they asked her, like, why? How? And she goes, I don't know. It's just an anomaly. I happened to be there, and I got hired for this one job, and people liked me and kept hiring me. Mm-hmm. But I never knew why I was so lucky to be, you know, kind of, yeah, yeah, the only pioneer. Right. And it's a really, really fascinating uh, interview. It's uh, if you look at the Television Academy foundation website uh, her name is francis bush if you want to uh that sounds incredible listen to her interview about it but yeah let's let's take a break and we'll move on to west side story well real quick oh go ahead go ahead yeah, yeah i was just gonna say like um you know i was talking to my buddy craig who's big into zizek and stuff and and we were saying you know like there is this thought that um film doesn't have the ability to um affect lives i guess like it used to um because everything's been done before Mm -hmm. um but i think what's happening now is that representation has become the new mode of like communicating thought and things like yeah without a doubt there are the story about a white kid doing something is pretty well-worn fucking territory. You know what I mean? Like that, you're not really going to be able to accomplish anything. Like, yeah, it's like, you know, he he put it really succinctly. He said, um, you know, what do you call it? Somebody makes a statue. What is that called? Sculpting. Sculpture is a dead medium, right? Like (laughs) you're not going to really improve upon sculpture. Very similar to movies about white people. Like, you are not going to really improve <laughs> upon ideas that right. were set forth by Hitchcock, Bergman, these Ozu. Like, well, yeah. Ozu is not white people, but. Well, the ultimate um, statement about, you know, gangsters was made by Coppola. Exactly. What more are you going like, to say? Like, what more are you going to fucking do? And then, you know, something like The Sopranos comes out, and that's very interesting. Sure, right, but absolutely. Like, yeah. we've, but that was television, right? It was a, right. It was able to do it because it was a different medium, so it was right. a longer form. Longer form. Right. Um, but nowadays, it's like, wh- that is well-worn fucking territory. Funny, yeah. But you know what isn't? Like, Black Panther, you know? Things like that are are, are where the medium is you know, being put 
pushed thing. forward. Yeah. And and that is going to inform a entire new generation of filmmakers who now see themselves being represented on screen who are going to make amazing things in the same way we're talking about Zizek, right? Like these are right. things that are informing other people. And now these are ideas that you can only have because you are, uh, you know, a disenfranchised person. And sure. now you are going to go make films informed by those films and vice versa. And it becomes this great like feedback thing and, and film will and is being pushed forward in an extremely interesting way. That's great. I mean, so while we are in uh, a difficult time kind of politically and sociologically, there are good signs like that. I happening. think so. Yeah. Absolutely. If, if Unless, you know, Disney buys another studio. <laughs> <laughs> Or there used to be there used to be things in place to keep things like that from happening. Yeah, deregulation. Of course, like, yeah. And the, those you... things were put in place in the late '40s, like television ownership rules and yeah. newspaper ownership rules, for a reason. Yep. And we forgot those reasons, and I think for for you know to our very much our own detriment. Well, and you know, not even to talk about this WGAATA thing, but it's like the same art. And you know, it's been going on for a while now. I would imagine the people who listen to our podcast are pretty up to date on why packaging is bad. And what's going on right um but people tend to forget that like mca gave birth to universal studios mm -hmm. mca was the biggest agency in the world and they decided they would rather get into content <laughs> as we call it now and it ended up being so profitable that they decided um oh great we will shutter our agency business this 10 percent model isn't working for us right. and we will create a movie studio which was fantastic for the entertainment industry that's hundreds of thousands of jobs over the course of many many years still going on today um, and if Endeavor or WME or CAA or whoever decides they want to get into the content business and create another fucking studio, that is fantastic. Yeah. You just can't negotiate against your own clients. Like right. you can't. So that's that's that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Take, Take a break. break now. Now we're back. Oh, did I fuck up? Did I talk over the old recording? No. You okay. Didn't. Good. I think we're good. We're good. back. Clearly professionals and audio. Oh That's God. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, by the way, if uh, you're a fan of the podcast and you happen to know a thing or two about audio mixing <laughs> or engineering, um, we're definitely open to uh, having you come on in a free capacity. Yeah. <laughs> well, us. the payment is you get to hang out with us. You get to hang out with us. Which, yeah. I mean... And on. wouldn't it be nice to have a third person that we could sort of make fun of or shit on, which seems to be the the dominating thing in podcasts is that everybody is, makes fun of their engineer. Yeah, I, I think it <laughs> I don't actually understand that. I think it actually started with Howard Stern making okay. fun of his producer. Okay, and it kind of you know took off from there, and now yeah. every radio show does it, and now every podcast does it. Oh, I saw the most brutal thing the other day. Uh -huh. um, speaking of Stern, I had never seen his like e talk show uh -huh. have you seen it of course well he had gary shandling on i think it's the pilot okay and yeah. oh my god that's just like it's almost like that R gervais thing all over again right. like like <laughs> it's just like the energy just is not matched at all and uh i mean you can tell that gary really respects stern but this sure. is such not the medium for him yeah um great sentence morgan uh yeah anyway cool what are we talking about um west side story Okay, tell everybody now, what this it is. was not <laughs> this was not supposed to be the topic. Okay. Um it was Stanley uh, Donan. I guess yeah, last month or two months ago or whatever, Stanley Donan died and we were gonna get together and do a podcast with Stanley Donan movies. Yes. Now, um I think I cancelled, I bombed out, so it's it was totally my fault. But 
Um, one of the movies I had planned to do was Stanley Donan's first movie, which was On the Town. Mm-hmm. Now, On the Town was a musical originally done on Broadway in 1944 with uh, music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, um, and directed by Arthur Lawrence and um, choreography by Jerome Robbins. And uh, and. Th- that these geniuses got together and made a musical was pretty pretty incredible at the time because Leonard Bernstein was known mostly kind of for classical music and okay. being the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, mm-hmm. and Jerome Robbins was mostly known for his work with the New York City Ballet. Okay, um, so it was the first time like kind of uh, that kind of balletic kind of dancing was ever sort of seen on Broadway, where the the dancing became sort of a major thing, sure. a major attraction about the show. Yeah. So this was in 1944, and it's a big hit, and it's great. And um, Betty Comden and uh, Adolph Green are, are writing the the lyrics, and and Bernstein's writing the music. So in 1949, it gets bought by MGM. Um, and made into a musical starring um, Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra, and um, Ann Miller was in it, um, and Betty Garrett, who uh, people listening may or may not remember as the landlady from Laverne and Shirley, um, and she played Archie Bunker's next door neighbor Eileen Lorenzo okay. for All a right. while. Yeah. Um, but uh, so they, they do this movie, and it's actually quite a good movie for an MGM musical. And it's the first movie where uh, they, the first MGM musical where they use New York City. They they shoot on location in New York City because they'd always just use the back lot before yeah. for New York. So that's really cool to like yeah. see them I'm at sure. Rockefeller Center and sure. and in all these kind of locations in New York. And, yeah. and, and it's not not a bad movie. But Leonard Bernstein went to see it and was completely outraged. Um, because they took his brilliant score and, um, I don't know, he had written maybe, there were maybe 20 songs or so in the actual musical that was on stage and, and, and it was great. And he had taken kind of, uh, he took jazz and incorporated it into kind of whatever was the standard kind of Broadway music at the time. Sure. And, um, it was really cool. It was really, it, it really worked. But the way MGM was, was, uh, you know, Louis B. Mayer and Arthur Freed, who was kind of the head of MGM production at the time, um, had an in-house songwriter that wrote like most of the music for their movies, which tended to be, uh, in my opinion, kind of generic and middling. Yeah. So they get rid of like 16 songs from the original uh, Bernstein okay. uh, score. Yeah. And they only use four songs, one of which was like the most famous one, which you had to use, which was New York, New York. Why, and now, why do you town. think they did that? I think it was just to put their own stamp on it. I Just mm. to say, hey. Just the studio system yeah. not working. Yeah, I of, see yeah. Louis V. Mayer just saying, what do we pay this guy for who was their in-house uh-huh. writer? But actually... Make like, him work. Right, yeah. exactly. So Leonard Bernstein sees it and is completely angered um, and vows to never have that happen again. So he vows to never sign off on a movie unless he has control over kind of what music they use of his and that you know if they bought a score of his they would have to use the whole thing or if they deleted some of it they would have have to to get his permission sure and just as an example of one of the songs um that was cut that is such a great song 
um, from 1944. We're going to play it now, just like a minute of it. Uh, it was uh, a big hit at the time. Um, it's I Can Cook Too, sung by Nancy Walker, who later went on to play Rhoda's mother on the Mary Tyler Moore show and Rhoda. Yeah. So yeah, just, just play a minute of I Can Cook Too. Beautiful. covers some girls keep house on a dime some girls make wonderful lovers but what a lucky find I'm I'd make a magazine cover I do keep house on a dime I'd make a wonderful lover I should be paid over time because I can bake too on top of the lot my okay yeah so this great <laughs> tune um which know. is a I big know. hit I'm not a huge fan of it you're not why you're not a fan of it? I don't know. Okay, it's not your thing. No. Okay, so you you probably would prefer the um the more generic kind Maybe, of I don't um, know. Anyway, so they delete that song from It's kind of reminds me of like Andrew's sisters or something, who I do like. It's like what's that? Bugle boy. Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Yeah. yeah, I guess I mean it is kind of um written in that style because it is like kind of a World War Two thing. I mean the whole play of on the town is about a bunch of soldiers coming um, on leave in New York and just kind of their wacky misadventures mm -hmm. that they go on. Sure. But anyway, so um, Bernstein is really angry um, over this fact that MGM has. And, and so no musicals are made of his movies for the next, uh, you know, 12 years. Okay. Um, so finally, he gets back together, uh, reunites with Jerome Robbins um, and Arthur Lawrence, who's the director. And this time it's not Betty Comden and Adolf Green writing the lyrics. They get this young composer named Stephen Sondheim to write the lyrics. Um, oh, is it? I think it's playing okay, somewhere. Okay, I'll stop it. That's all right. Uh, yeah, so they get Stephen Sondheim to write the lyrics. And... Um, they, you know, when they sign the contract to make West Side Story, it's with the stipulation that they have to use his entire score. Great. Um, so they do. And, and you know, as I was uh, as I was thinking about it, I thought uh, I'd rather just watch West Side Story than watch On sure. the Town. Yeah. So um, you had seen it when you were pretty young. Yeah, it's what, my what mom's it? favorite movie. So yeah. I had seen it when I was pretty young. I definitely, I think, kind of remember being bored and thinking right. it was kind of cheesy. Or something. Of course. Right. Definitely. Definitely don't think that now. I think it's pretty gorgeous. Um, yeah, it's uh, the music's great. The choreography is on another level, really cool. And then plus you get a couple of Twin Peaks guys in there, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Russ and, Tamblin yeah. and um, Ben Horn. Uh, um, Can't remember his name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gee, that's terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Either way. Uh, yeah, I thought it was like Richard a, Beamer. Richard Beamer. Incre Richard Beamer, who plays Ben Horn, and Russ Tamblin, who plays Doctor Jacoby are both in it and i'd love to know if that was a coincidence right sure on david lynch's part but i think i think um 
the guy who plays Ben Horn was really into TM, so he may have met David Lynch sure. that way. Yeah. I mean, either way, I think it's just, it's a very dark movie. Right. Um, it's very sad and tragic. I mean, as is Romeo and Juliet, obviously. Right. Well, yeah, it's but, based on Romeo and Juliet. And, and, you know, one of the things I said to you while we were watching it was imagine that you were uh, in the audience of West Side Story in 1956. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all you've ever known is like Oklahoma sure. or, um, you know, Pal Joey. Yeah, or these kind maybe of in happy, St. Louis. Or something. Yeah, happy yeah, musicals. Right. And the end of Act One, there are two dead bodies lying on stage with a bell tolling, you know, yeah, right. ringing midnight. Yeah. Um. Uh. So so it was pretty crazy for people to see. Um. But yeah. Um. As I said, it was the first time that um that this kind of electric jazzy dancing was used. Um. Jerome Robbins, who whose background had been in ballet. Uh, choreograph the these just brilliant brilliant dances um and when whenever someone um does a production of west side story today they are compelled to have to use robin's original choreography unless it's a high school that doesn't use dancing at all then they they get a waiver um but what's interesting is that they there was just a new revival sanctioned um, by this guy who is known, I'll, I'll look up his name, who's known for doing kind of avant-garde productions of old shows. He's done a bunch of Arthur Miller shows. Cool. Um, and he is being allowed to do it without that choreography, uh, which I, I had kind of mixed feelings about. But this this guy has proven himself enough that I think it should be okay. Well, and Spielberg's making... Is yeah, he using the choreography? Steven What's Spielberg? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. I think... Steven Spielberg has his work cut out for him. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's say first that West Side Story is based on Romeo and Juliet, yeah. and it's about two rival gangs in New York City in the 50s. Um, it's the white kids and the Puerto Ricans, and um, it's two gangs forever battling each other, and um, the guy from the white kids gang falls in love with the sister of Bernardo, the leader of the, the Sharks. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, star-crossed lovers, and right. um, uh, they they both. Well, no, he winds up dead. She does not wind up dead. So it does depart from Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, and what really struck me about it too is that I think musicals have a tendency to be um, uh, filmed and and composed and shot in incredibly kind of cheesy ways in a in a, in the sense that you don't exactly know why it makes you feel like this is campy and lame i think it has a lot to do with overhead jib shots <laughs> like i think sweeping camera moves generally speaking feel cheesy um but there are some like wonderful scenes in this movie where they're dance fighting and yeah. the ceiling is very low and the camera is with them in a kind of frenetic way where it's a it's a dance with the crew itself too and right. they do it in a in a way that adds weight to things even though they're dancing which could really take you out of it and make you feel like oh this is really cheesy nobody's actually getting hurt like when a knife comes into play even though they're doing what is essentially ballet yeah um, there's still weight and stakes to it which kind of goes out the window in a lot of musicals in my opinion right right and it, and it should be noted that it's actually co-directed by uh, Robert Wise, who also did um, Sound of Music and uh, edited Citizen Kane and did the first Star Trek movie, which I think is great. 
um, and uh, and Jerome Robbins, uh, even though he only choreographed it, he, that his choreography was so important to the project that they gave him co-directing credit. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I mean, I don't know what Spielberg is doing. I don't know if it's updated to the present day. And if it is, are they rewriting the dialogue? Um, um yeah, interesting. Are you going to put cursing? Are you going to put swearing in it? Um, are they going to use the original choreography? Yeah. Uh, I, I saw know. the, I saw I the video of the hard thing of the girl who's playing Maria. Um, she's great. She can really sing. Yeah. <laughs> she sounded amazing. And, uh, what's his name? Ansel Algort. Oh, is he? He's Tony. Oh, really? Yeah, he's hot. But um, I don't. <laughs> he can sing too. Yeah, but he's, he's really. He's a good actor. He's very, very attractive. Yeah, yeah, I true. Have to say, yeah, objectively um, attractive. And then, um, from the original um, movie, uh, Rita Moreno is who played Anita in the movie is playing the uh, shopkeeper. The shopkeeper part, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the things that makes the movie work is uh, Rita Moreno. Sure. And I think you care so much about her by the time the attempted rape happens that you are really deeply affected by what they're doing yeah. to this this nice person that you've come to care about during mm-hmm. the course of the movie. And I think like that might be the key to making the movie good or not. So Spielberg should definitely pay attention to that i think and we know he's listening we know he's listening and he takes our advice (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh i'm getting a call one second okay hello mr spielberg (laughs) (laughs) yeah um Uh, but yeah i'm 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 very interested i would i kind of would have preferred if they did like a a live tv version of it kind of um using the original choreography they're bad and but I don't know. They would have to do it without commercials because it's the commercials that kill them. What really. was the one that happened recently? It was like it didn't end up happening live because somebody rolled their ankle like ten minutes before. It was Rent. It was Rent, and yeah. then everybody in the audience had to watch <laughs> the rehearsal, which they had just taped. Yeah, they and then had, that's what they aired. They aired, yeah, they aired the rehearsal, and then I think like the last ten minutes they all performed live which i mean yeah it was terrible oh that's a brutal day but what was bad about that well was also that uh, nbc had that was on fox i think and nbc had a production of hair planned yeah which i think would have aired like this weekend but they Mm -hmm. they canceled it yeah just in in the wake of that having happened um i went i remember i was when i was at mtv i would get hired to do stuff for like viacom properties across the board and paramount was doing um uh Grease Live on Fox or something like that. And I went Yeah, it was on Fox. Had yeah. to interview like the cast on the sets and stuff and it was pretty funny. It was like Juliana Huff or whatever. Yeah, and, Grease and, Live wasn't bad. Yeah, that was okay. It was, was okay. it was pretty fun. I saw it. I was there. Um yeah, it was Jan fun. Brady was in it. Eve Plum. That's right. Yeah. yeah. She was in did it. Did you get to talk to her? I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Th- those are did. online somewhere, I'm sure. Everybody was really nice. Um but you know I'm from the studio that's making it they're of course gonna be nice to me right of course right but right. vanessa hudgens very very nice told right. her i loved her in spring breakers <laughs> right <laughs> how did she react to that she loves she loves oh, it cool. that's like her favorite thing she's ever done i think oh wow um i think that's true for a lot of those people uh, in that film like selena gomez and stuff i mean they really right yeah uh did you see beach bum by the way i haven't seen it it's yet. fantastic Harmony Karine tried to steal from. Um, no way! Tell me more. <laughs> you from Tower Records? This? No, no, oh. no. This is a story Letterman told. Oh, what happened? When James Franco was on Letterman promoting um, 
what's the name of the movie? Say it again. Beach Bum? No, the oh, Spring Breakers. Spring Breakers. Yeah. Uh, he, um, Harmony Crime used to go on Letterman all the time in the nineties. Yeah, and, those are great appearances. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so somehow it comes up that he stopped inviting him on, and uh, James Franco is like, yeah, what did what was the deal on that? And Letterman goes, well, you know, I, um, you know, I usually go into the green room and like greet everyone, you know, before the show just to say hi. And I go into the green room and there's your friend. And the other person on the show that night was Meryl Streep. And he was going through Meryl Streep's purse. (laughs) (laughs) So if you watch that third episode, which was his last one, you can tell Letterman Letterman knew he just, this guy, (laughs) geez. Oh, that's hilarious. He went through Meryl Streep's purse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know why. Probably just to see what was in it. But like that, that his books I'm... are very celebrity driven, and like that's what he's fascinated by, in kind of a Warhol way, right? Um, and that sounds so Harmony Corrine to me to go through Meryl Streep's purse, probably just to know what was in it, so he could tell people, right. Yeah, I mean, I think Letterman's... I don't think that's okay. I'm not condoning it. I do think it's funny. I think the (laughs) implication that Letterman seemed to be making was that he was trying to find money for drugs or something. Oh, maybe. But I don't know. Who the hell knows? I mean, that's, you know, what... Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I think... think, uh, I, I, I was telling you my initial exposure to West Side Story was when I was in college, I got a VHS of it uh, which uh, was pan and scanned and you know how like how big yeah, screen it is and it uses the it entire like it's so screen. wide everything in it is like it's almost Robert like Wise and Jerome Robbins uh, filled yeah. the screen with choreography and, yeah. and whatever was going on to and, see it in a yeah. square on yeah, a CRT seeing, TV I'm, it was probably about a third of what was going on That's that hilarious. I watched I can't even imagine and yet I loved it even on that sure yeah um, well the name of the, the that avant-garde director is Ivo Van Hove. Okay. And I've heard of them. What yeah. did they do? He is um he had directed a revival of um A View from the Bridge, Arthur okay. Miller's A View from the Bridge. Yeah. And um there's part of it where you know, it's it's a play written in the fifties and it, it is very fifties style, like you can feel it. Um at some point, uh someone just out of nowhere has bongos and they're playing the bongos and the dialogue starts the the dialogue starts playing going to the beat of the bongos like in a certain cool. time yeah um but i could never figure out exactly why like what was on his mind there uh-huh but if i if i were smarter i could probably understand like Andy why Kaufman. yeah it was yeah. i don't know like yeah i don't know if there was some point to it or sure. if he just felt that it would be good to do yeah uh if anyone listening knows yeah you know right in know. yeah um, but yeah, so they are allowing him to do the first production of it on Broadway without the choreography, cool. which I would be most recently they did one where um, it was about seven years ago where they let Arthur Lawrence direct it again. Um, at that point, he was um, 80, 97 years old, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Um, and they the way they updated it was that they made all of the Sharks dialogue and songs in Spanish. So I, I think you kind of, if That's cool. you didn't speak Spanish, you kind of had to yeah. be familiar with the story, sure. and, which I, I'm sure a lot of people who, oh, yeah, of course. who go to see the revival are. Yeah, right. Um, 
And I, I think the movie is definitely flawed, and it shows how good it is with the choreography and the and the music and stuff that you can have a lead actor with a lead performance that's so flawed and still have the movie be a masterpiece. Because I don't think that Richard Beamer is very good, particularly when you said he hates it. He, he hates, hates his performance. He, he won't talk about it. Yeah. If you interview him, you are instructed beforehand, don't bring up West Side Story. And if you're going to bring up West Side Story, the interview doesn't happen because <laughs> he's so embarrassed by it. Um, don't you think it'd be interesting to hear him talk about why he doesn't like it? I always found that interesting when people do, for example, it's a quick tangent. But, right. Um, no, yeah. I, re- I watched um, uh, Michael Mann's Miami Vice. Uh, have you ever seen it? Um, no, I haven't. Okay, well, so Michael Mann, he's done Collateral is a great film. Manhunter is a phenomenal. Silence, or it's like Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter story. He did Heat, which everybody knows him for. Um, he created Miami Vice in the '80s, or he's one of the right. co-creators. And then so and Manhunter, did you say that? That's a great one. Yes, Manhunter yeah. is uh, it's an adaptation of Red Dragon. It's one of my favorite. Uh, yeah, I love those Richard Harris books. Like, I think they're incredibly good. I like even the Ratner movies. Like, I just like that <laughs> oh world. Um, loved oh the show, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But Manhunter is like particularly great. Brian Cox is incredible. So anyway, he created Miami Vice like in the 80s and then about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer than that now, um, he turned Miami Vice into a movie star- starring Colin Farrell Jamie and Fox. Jamie Foxx. And um, I was at drinks with my friends and they were like, oh, Colin Farrell uh, was talking about Miami Vice the other day. And he said that he was fucked up during the entire movie, like he was drunk and on drugs (laughs) the entire time. And uh, I was like, that's incredible. I have to see this movie. So I started looking into it. Turns out it was just this whole disaster. Like Jamie Foxx walked off set and didn't come back like midway through the movie because a real gun went off. Um, and yeah, Colin Farrell was all fucked up. And then Michael Mann was like hiring actual gangsters to be the film security or something like just like all this mess. And, um, it has caused these critics to go back and reevaluate the film, um, based on all that stuff that has come out about it. And I just think that there's no shame and well, maybe there's a shame in being a professional actor and saying you were fucked up on set the entire time. You're going to be uninsurable, but also like that is something for film critics and historians and scholars to like take a look at and, and reevaluate the performance in a film that may have been overlooked right because it was a huge bomb or something like the, to me beamer should talk about that's his name right beamer yeah richard, yeah. Beamer, richard yeah. beamer i would be very interested to know like what his opinion of it is maybe he was just a young actor and didn't yeah. know any better but like either way to just shut down completely and be like, I'm embarrassed yeah. about it. I don't want to talk about yeah. it. It's like, that's a shame, man. Give us give us a little bit. Well, he was failed, I think, by the director, who Robert Wise, who in, in rushes should have seen that he was coming off rather effeminate. Not that, I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just for this character. It just it doesn't work. Sure. Uh, because you have to believe that Maria is so sexually attracted to him. Um that she, you know, was willing to defy her her culture and her parents or whatever. But actually, you know, watching it with you the other day, it just occurred to me like, okay, so the, the beginning part of the movie, he's not very good in, but he's actually very good kind of in the later half after... Yeah, when these Riff tragedies start killed. stacking up. He's, he's good he's when pretty he's good. running through the streets, you know, saying, yeah. you know, come and get me to... Like, he's great in, yeah. the, in those scenes. And if I ever got to interview him, that's what I would tell him, that he should not, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. And that, yes, you know, the beginning parts of the movie, he's not great in and, and, and 
and you know that's not necessarily his fault he was you know whatever 19 years old sure but he should be proud of the later parts because he's he's great in that yeah definitely um but yeah and and the other the other reason was that it was just a really bad experience for him because natalie wood uh was going out with Warren Beatty at the time yeah. and begged the directors and producers to, to cast Warren Beatty instead Tony. of him. Yeah. And apparently she was not very nice to him because of the fact that she, he wasn't the leading man that she wanted. So he Well, and yeah. I had heard some things too. There was that really great Natalie Wood podcast uh that had come out recently. I, I would encourage everybody to listen to it. Um that is uh, one of these murder podcasts that right. I think treats everybody with respect uh-huh. and it's something that we're still dissecting and going through today because I think the guy who committed it is He's walking around. Yeah. Um but uh Beatty, I think they were saying, was really domineering and kind of insisted that he be like in her films. And stuff. oh, interesting. Or maybe I'm mixing him up with in Wagner. Splendor in the Grass. Yeah, yeah. Um, I might be mixing him up with Wagner. Um, where Wagner didn't want her to do movies with Beatty. I think either way, she was uh, went through a slew of very controlling men. Right. Uh, <laughs> so who the fuck knows? There's a yeah. version of um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Robert Wagner and. Nat- Natalie Wood um, from 1976, uh, and it, and and it is interesting. He is not cast well in that role. Sure, he doesn't really make sense. She, I mean, she's just beautiful. Yeah, like, she's incredible. You can't take your eyes yeah. off her. But uh, Big Daddy is played by uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Oh, so great. that's definitely yeah. Like it's a bit of a mess, but it's it's interesting to sure. watch. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so Spielberg's West Side Story. I, I mean, I guess it's happening. Like the the, the cast is all together, and um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm fascinated to see what he does with it, and I, I think he has his work cut out for him for sure. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, he's if anything, he's competent. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anyone can do it. Um, but th- this this reminds me of, of something that was announced the other night um, that ABC is doing that tribute to Norman Lear. Yes. What's going on with that? Uh, so I guess Jimmy Kimmel is the driving force behind this. Cool. And uh, recently, uh, Norman Lear has been working on the reboot of One Day at a Time mm-hmm. on Netflix, sure. which uh, Netflix recently announced was not coming back for a fourth season. Mm-hmm. And that's been kind of a big deal. They've been trying to work something out with Hulu. And okay. apparently ne- Netflix is blocking it for some okay. reason. Yeah. Which, you know, Norman Lear is like 97 years yeah. old. Yeah. So why would you do that? Just let the man have yeah. the show. Right. But I don't know. I don't know if Kimmel's doing this to kind of, you know, pay tribute to him because this other thing is okay. happening. Yeah. But Kimmel's producing something called um, live in front of a studio audience, uh, Norman Lear's All in the Family and the Jeffersons. So it's a 90-minute special, and they're taking two scripts, one from All in the Family and one from the Jeffersons, and doing them live. With who? Um, with, with what actors? Um, with, uh, see, that's the part that's hard. Yeah. Um, is that Woody like, Harrelson. Like, Archie Bunker? Like... Woody Harrelson is playing Archie Bunker. Oh, interesting. And Marissa Tomei. Oh, this will be great. Yeah, is yeah. playing Edith Bunker. Great, that'll, that'll and, be fun. Yeah, Jamie yeah. Foxx, the aforementioned Jamie Foxx yeah. is playing George Jefferson. Great. Uh, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that sounds really it. like a yeah. great idea. And I'm gonna, um. <laughs> It'll get an audience of half a person, but right. it sounds great. <laughs> I've uh, I'm I'm gonna write about it and I'm gonna try to be in the audience. Yeah, I would um, love to see that. It'd be awesome. Uh, yeah, and and you can come with me if I get a plus one. But I know some people at Kimmel, and this is a, yeah. This would be maybe a favor to yeah, call. Yeah, this would be yeah. a good see one to what call you can in. Do. Yeah, 
But um, I agree, again, that if anyone can do it, like, those two are good choices. But I think it's so hard. Because Archie and Edith Bunker are so iconic that, I mean... You can't get up there and do an imitation of them. No, or you got to do your own out. thing, and right. I think that's great. Right. Um. I. You know, UCB occasionally does read-throughs of like famous scripts, like they did, like I think they did Space Jam with like a whole new cast, and that's just it's a blast. Like you get to see an alternative take on something right. you know and love, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, yeah. I I'm all for. I, you know, I think we rely real heavily on remakes and stuff in this country, and but. Um, it's not like because Ghostbusters came out with Melissa McCarthy that it undermines sure. the three Ghostbusters. You films. could still like, watch them. Yeah, they, like they didn't <laughs> fucking recut it. They didn't right. go replace all their photon packs with <laughs> walkie talkies. You know, it's not that type of thing. Um, well, again, yeah, it's not yeah. that I'm against it. Sure. It's just that I think that for an actor, it's it's a big mountain to climb. Oh, and absolutely. I, I look forward yeah. to seeing what they do. Definitely. Did, did I tell you about when I met Norman Lear? Tell me, I don't think so. So um, I was uh, producing for um, this freeform short-lived talk show called Truth and Eliza with Eliza Schlesinger. And uh, we had Norman Lear on. Um, we went to his office, me and Eliza and, like, uh, the camera guy, basically. It was really cool. He was very, very friendly and nice. I wrote all the questions for him. It was all about, like, generational differences mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, he Very, you know, well-informed dude, totally with it. Um, and... <laughs> We were there for like an hour or so, and um, he calls his his secretary comes in or his assistant or whoever comes in and says, you know, I think they had had this plan concocted to like get him out of it <laughs> within <Right>. an hour because <laughs> she comes in and she goes, hey, Norman. He's like, yeah. And, and she goes, uh, uh, Mary is here. And I was like, all right, <laughs> they're being really nice to us and being respectful. But I picked up on the hint, you know. Um, so I was like, all right, cool. We can, we can stop down or whatever. And so we start like packing up and, and Norman goes, we'll send her in. (laughs) (laughs) And, and and his assistant goes, um, (laughs) he forgot. Yeah. They're like, you want me to, you want, she, you want me to get her and send her in? He's like, yeah, where is she? Where is she? She's like, she's in the lobby. And he's like, yeah, tell her to come in. And she's like, Oh, okay. And then, like, I just locked eyes with her, and I was like, "I know what you're doing. It's fine. Like, well, we're we're leaving. We're leaving." And you got the hell out of there. And we got the hell out of there. Yeah, yeah. I didn't uh, talk about Reiner on this, did I? No. Well, we'll talk about that at, later at the end or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and and Lear, uh, he's just a great guy. He uh, in the early 2000s, I think, he co-wrote a whole season of South Park. So Norman Lear did. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Uh huh. You still watch South Park, right? I do. It's pretty good still, I hear. It's like consistently great. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they've, I, I think I mentioned on here before, is that they've done, this whole last season was essentially a mea culpa of positions they've taken in the past. You did they say that, yeah. On. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. I'd like to see that. Yeah. You know, I, they used to call everybody gay on that show and stuff. Yeah, like, It'd yeah. be interesting to see what they well, think there's, about that now. There, there's an episode that essentially... Um, advocates communism which is interesting like literally great uh, which uh but yeah i i i would i would watch the most recent season just watch cool. the whole thing because it's a really yeah. interesting arc nice. but yeah the one of the episodes that lear co-wrote was that 
um, Earth is a reality show being run by aliens. Okay. And did, did you see that one? No, at all? I, I don't think and so. And it's like these weird looking aliens with giant noses, and um, they're constantly snorting, you know, what looks like Coke, like these giant <laughs> lines of Coke. It's great. It's really funny that Norman Lear was in on that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, be very interesting to see kind of what they do and you know gosh i i just get nervous when i think when i imagine how woody harrelson feels about having to take on or even i think uh i think that the task of taking on edith bunker is even harder oh, yeah because she is kind of such a caricature yeah. yet believable and you were always with her right like it was never she never struck a false note um, so yeah, I don't know how she's going to do that, but I'm, I'm very interested to see. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Um, well, and then I guess we were going to talk about Mad Max. I don't really have a ton to say about it, except it's great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, uh, I avoided it just cause it doesn't seem like the kind of movie I'd be into, but yeah, like aesthetically speaking and, um, just the story was fascinating. And, uh, as you mentioned, it's feminist, but I even think it's just post-feminist. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, yeah. Of course, women are part of this great story. Yeah, like, totally. It's not. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's not, not heavy-handed at all. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's funny because we watch, we sat down to watch West Side Story, and then something in me was just like, "Oh, John should see Mad Max yeah. Fury Road." I guess based on choreography or something, it just worked like, out. Where yeah. you, yeah, they they kind of complement each other in this weird way. I guess back to Zizek that you wouldn't think about, and I think it's more just like camera moves and and um technical proficiency of just knowing what's happening on screen even though there's a lot occurring right um is is really skill you know that's a, that's a lot of skill yeah and yeah. and there people had begged me friends of mine had begged me to watch it and i always said that i would and i it's not like i avoided it sure. um but yeah so so you finally put it in front of me and i thought it was really really excellent and and i could see why a lot of people were upset that it didn't win best picture absolutely because it does make the the most of cinematography and being a movie which yeah. most movies just can be you know on tv now they're yep. like it's just n no different from a tv show yeah and that uh, is and mad max movie. is very yeah yeah right capital m movie exactly yeah um all right well i think that wraps it up about i guess yeah i have one more um birthday i wanted to mention okay uh today is the birthday the 70th birthday of miss patty lupone okay and, happy birthday um the woman is uh, a genius yeah and a force of nature. Yeah. And um, I uh, I do have a clip uh, that I sent you if, if you'll play a little bit of it. Yep. What this is is, so in 1979, she gets her first Broadway role, which is Evita, which is an impossible role to sing. Yeah. Like What's she, that note? It's like an E6 or something? Yeah, it's, it's called it's like Nobody Can Hit It. It's crazy. Like, yeah, yeah. She has to hit it, you know, several yeah. times. And um, she can't do it at first. And like they're they were in LA they opened it in LA before they went to Broadway and she was almost fired and she's like completely miserable until this one particular voice teacher gets a hold of her and teaches her how to sing the, the score oh wow and after that she was fine and she wins the Tony and everything and in fact uh every Saturday night after singing you know in Evita for three hours she would go to this gay club, Los Muches, and do an entire nightclub act until three in the morning. What the fuck? And um, yeah, here she is. And you could hear the cocaine in this clip. Uh, but here she is singing Rainbow High from, uh, from that nightclub act after performing in Evita.
getting started. Let's get this show on the road. Let's make it obvious, bed on us off and rolling. I came from the people, they need to adore me. The Christian to your me, from my head to my toes. I need to be dazzling, I want to be rainbow. They must have excitement, and so must I. I'm the product, it's vital you sell me. Some lucky of me, make an Argentine rose. I need to be thrilling, and I shall be rainbow. They need their escape, and so do I. Oh, my death can be followed, expect me to outshine the enemy. You're not decorating a cover at night on the town And I'm not a second-rate queen getting kicked on a crown That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, huh? that's a good great. song too. Yeah. I like that song a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one you like. Yeah, that um, one I love. That is a beautiful song. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to see her next month at Lincoln Center. She's doing her 70th birthday celebration. Great. Um. Which is cool because she like got her start at Juilliard and yeah. you know toured with their theater group sure. and and uh, the first time I actually saw her on stage was doing Anything Goes at the Vivian Beaumont Theater at Lincoln Center. So I'm really excited and usually like I think a person's voice is usually gone by age 70. No, she just been, didn't she she performed at like the Emmys at the Grammys. Or, oh, at the yeah, Grammys like a couple of years ago and was incredible. Yeah, and she yeah. was incredible. So uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be really cool to get her to to see her. Soon all those old songs and and you know it might be one of the last times you know i get to see her sing live so yeah you I'm know really the, looking forward i think to when it. those opportunities come up you gotta go you like gotta i go. saw yeah. aretha franklin at radio city music wow. hall and it was like so so great and then yeah. she's gone you know yeah, one yeah. Day. that's it um but hopefully lauren mccall or not lauren mccall <laughs> she says it in the song that's right. why i'm thinking of it uh patty lapone will be well, around for many years to come that's an interesting story i love that story that yeah. on opening night uh when that lyric came on uh, you know, Lauren Bacall was sitting, you know, in the audience, in the third row. Yeah. And she goes, I'm the savior. That's what they call me. So Lauren Bacall me and like looked right at her. Great. And, and you could hear there's a recording of it. Everyone applauds, you know. Awesome. So it's Just pretty great. great. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, everybody. Well, uh, if it's cool with you, John, I'd like to leave everybody with this. Um, my best friend from childhood, Tim Mahoney, does the most incredible Slavoj Zizek impression in the world. <laughs> yes. Um, this is a live performance um, from this show in New York called Literati, which is a, a great live show. If you're in New York, you've got to see it. Um, people pretend to be authors and they read books. Um, this is Tim pretending to be Slavoj Zizek 
um, giving a, a, a lecture on on the Muppets. It's entitled um, "How the Muppets Enslaved Us Again." Um, so it's about eight minutes long, and I uh, really hope you enjoy it. Enjoy. Let me jump right into the book. This chapter of my upcoming book is called "How the Muppets Enslaved Us Again." So we are moral. And we choose to be, oh, you know, it's, oh, every moment I'm like, a, they're going to assassinate me. <laughs> so we choose to be good guys and good girls. For example, when I see a small dog tied to a gate, I don't go, my God, what a good dog. I could make him do so many things for me. <laughs> you know, like get my newspaper, eat my dog food, sleep on my bed, and so on. But the dog is not mine, so I do not take it. But why? Why can I not make this dog my perfect dog? And do we feel compelled to act like good boys and girls? Did we all forget? I mean, seriously, did we all forget Nietzsche's famous God is dead? For when Nietzsche condemned man to have killed God, did he not also give us more time for fun and for parties? <laughs> and this is precisely the problem. At the same time that Christ was killed, we killed the God, the evil Kermit the Frog was born. <laughs> Kermit the Frog would not only force us to laugh against our will, but he will try to convince us he is not a total monster. <laughs> there is nothing enjoyable about Kermit's demands. In fact, I'm, I'm willing to go to the end and say Kermit the Frog is worse than a god ever could be. And here is the point, and I mean this quite literally. God promised us heaven if we are good boys and girls, but, but Kermit only gives us pain when we play his sick game. <laughs> his It's Not Easy Being Green, you know the song, you know that song? Does this not provide exactly the same guilt of the Christ on the cross? And here is why. The Christ on the cross is the guy going, oh no, they killed me to make me, you know, you guys feel good, please be good, and we must obey the commandments, and so on. But is it not also true, and I mean this, is it not also true that it's not busy being green? This gospel functions precisely the same way. It is a, oh no, it is so hard being a green frog, you human people should be better because I am down here and I am a tiny frog. Have pity for me because I am small. But fuck it, I don't care. We simply, we simply do not need to continue to that tiny frog. There is nothing worse, by the way, than listening to someone small. My <laughs> for example, my son Dominic always says things to me and I go, you are small, I literally don't have to listen to you. <laughs> and I continue, I make me, fucking make me. And of course my son, he doesn't make me do anything. Because I am a big strong guy and my son is weak and bad. <laughs> so, to continue. When Carmen and his apostles sing, it's time to put on makeup, it's time to get things started on the funny Muppet show tonight, this condemnation is worse than death. We laugh so much at the song, and then they, of course, activate the intense guilt by going, why don't you get things started on the Muppet show tonight? Fuck it, why don't they get things started on the Muppet show tonight? 
Why do we continue to follow the crazy commands of this Kermit? This fucking Kermit. Fuck Kermit. And I don't care about Kermit. He is either totally pointless or a complete monster. There is no in-between. You know, kind of like how you either skateboard or rollerblade. You, you either do one or the other. Or I suppose... In certain circumstances, you may ride your bike if you left your skateboard in your dad's car and so on. <laughs> but by the way, by the way, I am a total skateboarder. Anyone could tell you this. When I was doing my second PhD on words, I used to totally board slide this sick tent stair near my office. It was dope, believe me. <laughs> also, that reminds me, while I was in school, you know when I was younger and small, God forbid, I ate too much candy. And I'm serious, I ate way too much candy. I was told, in hindsight, by this stupid boy, that if I don't eat candy, I would turn into monster. But I believed him because he was that type of daddy kid that was growing up quicker because of his family breaking apart and so on. But anyways, I ate a lot of candy to avoid being monster. Just like in Steven Spielberg's film, E.T., well, that stupid monster eats the candies so he won't murder his master, Elliot. <laughs> and just like that idiot monster, E.T., I became very sick and had to go to hospital where they basically said, my God, this kid is so full of candy, he must eat normal food. You witch mother, why would you not feed your son normal food, you dumb idiot, etc. But, but here is the thing. I stopped eating candy, and it turned out that the stupid boy was kind of right. For I am a sort of monster, precisely the type of monster that would purposely fall downstairs to get attention of a woman. <laughs> but like the monster E.T., I cannot help but wonder who I would be if I wasn't stopped eating candy. <laughs> the point is, once we began to follow orders, if we follow an order to stop following orders, we begin to order our ordering orders. In short, we must be careful not to allow others to turn us to monsters. And in this case, to go back, Kermit the Frog must be stopped, but luckily he is already stopping himself. And you look crazy, you say, what are you talking, I will tell you. When Kermit sings in that painfully funny song, Someday We'll Find It, That Fucking Rainbow, he calls on three people, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. He calls on himself. Here, Kermit is following his own commands and falling in love with his own control. When you fall in love with your own despotism, there is no saving you. Mao is, of course, the perfect paradoxical case for this. So when you fall in love with yourself, it is like asking the mirror on the wall, who is the prettiest one of all? But before the mirror answers, you say, shut up, it is me, you're just a mirror, I don't listen to mirrors. <laughs> We are now at the precipice of that same void Nietzsche warned us about. When we look into that abyss, we no longer have the abyss looking back. We instead must kill the monsters by putting them back into the abyss. <laughs> we must put back into the abyss Kermit and his apostles. You know, Pretty Piggy, Beakers, The Gonzo, Dr. Small Eyes, Music Dog, Idiot Chef, The Big Talking Mailbox, Snuffleupagus, that one woman with the no eyes but has the hair and goes, For sure, really? Her? <laughs> and, and of course, those two old 
don't wise guys, they must go. <laughs> and to leave you now, I will close by saying, we, once we cast off these demons, by putting them back into the abyss from whence they came, <laughs> we will be free once again to have a party and at last have fun again. And finally, I really mean it this time, this is my life. When all the bad guys are back in the abyss, we will seal it up and build a big statue of myself on top because it was my perfect idea to do a good thing to all the bad guys. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Clap of Jesus, everybody.